0: Good morning everyone. Good morning. Welcome to the SS Rivermont. The beautiful nautical theme, all the wonderful work that our VBS volunteers have put in. I do hope that you've registered your children that you will be here on Monday and that you'll have to take time out of your day today to help get things uh, across the finish line as they were. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll be looking specifically at 18 through 22, but I'll read 13 through 22. If you don't have a Bible, you'll find a blue Bible in front of you. You'll find our text on page 1016. We are continuing our sermon series on the book of First Peter. In our Getting to Know Rivermont class, we often talk about our method of preaching here at Rivermont, which we call expository preaching or expositional preaching. And that means that we draw out of the text what's there and we expose it to view. Now for Rivermont, that has historically meant that we preach through whole books of the Bible. And in preaching that way, you might say that we're keeping the pastors honest. We're not skipping over those passages that are too difficult to understand or too difficult to accept. Now if there is ever a time to want to skip a portion of First Peter. Or any other book of the Bible. It will be the text that's before us. And if you read ahead. You might understand why. But to skip this text. Would actually deprive you and me. Of much needed encouragement. And hope in the Christian life. We would miss much needed instruction. For living faithfully. In an ever hostile world toward Christ. Do you feel that hostility? Some of you certainly have, whether in the school or in the workplace or possibly even the home. You felt the pressure to conform. And I have no doubt that Peter's words this morning are going to encourage you. But some of you may not identify with that kind of hostility, at least not yet. You may wonder, how is this text going to help me? Well, consider this Preparatory work. You might even consider this advanced training. After all, how many of us would fly on a plane that's piloted by someone who's never flown a plane before and is looking at an instruction manual as you board the plane? Well, nobody would. The time to learn how to fly is not in the air, but on the ground. The same is true in the Christian life. The best time to learn how to live faithfully in the face of suffering is not in the midst of it, but well before it. So consider yourself enrolled in Peter's class on how to live faithfully as a Christian in a non-Christian world. And with that, let's read our text before us. 1 Peter 3, beginning with verse 13. This is God's holy word. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to Him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I suppose if there's any other time that we've needed your help, today is the day. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would speak, not only through me, that I might be clear, but to us that our ears might hear, that we might discern your truth, that we might be helped to live more faithfully as your followers. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Well, we just rolled into Lynchburg yesterday from our trip to Colorado. We enjoyed some family time in the mountains before heading back down to Denver to attend our EPC General Assembly. We got to bike Vail Pass, raft the Upper Colorado, sit in hot springs, and listen to concerts in an outdoor amphitheater surrounded by mountains. And on top of that, was my kids' first time to ever fly on an airplane. Needless to say, we're still feeling a little bit of that Rocky Mountain high. And that's in part because we took lots of pictures. We had to. There's so much beauty there. From snow-capped mountains, to surging rivers, to colorful wildflowers. It was all so beautiful. We knew there was no way that we would ever remember all the sights and the sounds. And so we took lots of pictures. We took lots of videos. We took these pictures and videos That we might store away our memories. That with each shot, with each video, we might keep and hide those memories. We we wanted to save those memories so that we could savor those memories again later. So that we could remember what we did and how we felt doing it. You see, it's that remembering that keeps the joy of a past memory alive in the present. It's that same kind of remembering that is needed in the Christian life. Well, what does that remembering look like? Well, as we read and meditate and pray through God's Word, we are taking mental pictures. We are taking snapshots of who God is, of who we are, and what He has done. We do that so that we can remember when we are tempted to forget We remember His covenant love that called and saved us unto Himself. We remember His faithfulness to honor His covenant promises despite our faithlessness. We remember the magnitude of His power as Christ holds all things together by the power of His Word. We remember the manifold wisdom of God who makes His plans and orders our steps to flourish us and not to harm us. We read and meditate and pray God's Word so that we can remember these truths when life gets hard. When the brokenness of this world breaks our hearts. When the weight of our trials crush our joy. It is then that we need these pictures to remind us of what is true about God. What is true about us. And what is true about what God has done and will do for us. That's exactly what Peter is doing here for these early Christians. Like you and me, these early Christians were feeling the pressures of their world. They were being pressed by the world to conform to its standards, which for them meant forsaking Christ and the holy life that he had called them to live. They were being hard pressed to conform to the world's view of sex, which was driven by desire and pleasure rather than marriage and commitment. They were being hard pressed to conform to the world's view of marriage, which was driven by getting your own needs met rather than meeting your spouse's needs. They were being hard pressed to conform to the world's view of authority, which was driven by an obedience of expedience rather than an obedience unto the Lord. They were hard pressed to conform to the world's view of religion, which was driven by the belief that all gods are suitable to build your life upon rather than the living stone, the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ. Do these sound at all familiar? They should, as our times are no different. And sadly, neither are our responses to these times. Verse 14 told us that these early Christians were afraid of the consequences of saying no to the world. They were afraid of the consequences of how they might be treated by their family, their neighbors, their authorities. They were afraid of what they might lose. Of what they might miss out on. As they said yes to Christ, they experienced ridicule and rejection. They faced real suffering in the form of economic And physical persecution. How does Peter encourage us as he did these early Christians in light of this ridicule and rejection and suffering? Well, he offers us four snapshots, four pictures as reminders of who he is, who we are, and what he has come to do. The first picture he gives us is that we are to remember Christ's suffering. Look in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now there are two aspects of Christ's suffering here that can help strengthen us in our own suffering. The first aspect of Christ's suffering is identification. The first four words of verse 18 spell this out. For Christ also suffered. Peter says this in direct response to the suffering the Christians were experiencing in verse 17. For Christ also suffered. He's saying you're not alone. Your suffering is not unique. Christ identifies with you because He too has suffered. Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 53.3 that Jesus was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That's incredibly comforting to know that you have someone to turn to who knows your suffering, who is no stranger to it. That happened to me when we started our trip in Colorado. For the first time in my life, I got altitude sickness. You might know that altitude sickness is caused by ascending to a high altitude too quickly. Thus the Rocky Mountain High. No, not really. It actually shocked both Denise and I because I had been to Colorado many times and I'd never suffered from this, yet the symptoms were unmistakable. And as I lay in bed feeling miserable, Denise offered much-needed words of comfort, but it's all she knew to do since she had never herself experienced altitude sickness. However, a friend of ours from Denver was staying with us the first couple of nights, And before moving to Denver many years earlier, he had experienced altitude sickness as well. He knew exactly how I was feeling and what I needed to feel better. Having my friend there strengthened and encouraged me because he knew what I was going through. You and I have in Christ Jesus one who knows what it is to suffer. We can turn to Him knowing that He understands, but more than that, he has done something about it which leads to the other aspect of Christ's suffering justification again look down at verse 18 peter writes for christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to god being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit this is the language of justification christ suffered and died once for sins the righteous For the unrighteous, we, the unrighteous, the ones who deserve the judgment of God because of our sin, have now been made righteous. The wrath of God that was ready to fall on us because of our rebellion instead fell on Christ and He was crushed. Now this is incredibly helpful for us to see. Peter is encouraging us to see that our greatest enemy is not the person causing our suffering. But it can feel like that, can't it? It can feel like the wounds they inflict are mortal to us. But Peter says our greatest enemy was our own sin. And because of Christ, it has been defeated. Because of Christ's work, you are no longer under God's wrath because you are no longer in your sin. Christ has justified us. Christ has taken our punishment and given us His righteousness that He might bring us to God, that we might be reconciled, adopted into His family, His child, His beloved. And yet the truth is that it's easy to think that we've been forgotten by God when we encounter suffering. We can even feel as though we have been forsaken by Him. Our cries to Him don't seem to be answered. We wonder, is He in another part of heaven and can't hear us? Christ's definitive answer is that it it's a resounding no. He has not forsaken you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Suffering is not a sign that you have been forsaken. Christ was forsaken on the cross so that we would never be. So when we encounter suffering for doing good, we must remember Christ's suffering. But secondly, we must remember Noah's day. I love that Peter takes us back to Noah. You know, sometimes we wonder if the Old Testament is still relevant for us living in the New Testament. It's one of the reasons why our sermon series on numbers was so helpful because it reminded us that the Old Testament was always pointing to Christ. It was teeming with signs and foretastes of our salvation through Him. And that was certainly true in Noah's day. Look down in verses 19 and 20. After Jesus was put to death in the flesh which is to say put to death in the physical realm, he was made alive in the spirit, which is to say in the spiritual realm. And in that spiritual realm, he, that is Christ, went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now this is where we're tempted to want to bail on Peter because it's not clear what he's talking about, much less how it relates to his main point. Now there are several credible interpretations of this passage, but I believe there is one that best fits the context. Peter is here referring to the wicked of Noah's generation. Those who disregarded God and ridiculed Noah for his righteousness. It was to these individuals that Jesus was sent by God in the Spirit to proclaim the Gospel through Noah. You may remember in 1 Peter one through 10-11, Josh alluded to it, that it was the Spirit of Christ who preached through the prophets of old. And here now we see that the same Spirit of Christ also preached to the disobedient generation of Noah's day through Noah. He was the mouthpiece through which God preached the gospel of repentance and salvation. He was, as Peter described him in Second 2 Peter 2-5, a herald of righteousness, which is another way of saying a preacher of the gospel. If we look at Genesis 6-3, we see a pronouncement from God that man's days will only be 120 years. This could refer to the shortening of man's life to only 120 years going forward. But the context seems to indicate something else. I think it is best to see this as a 120-year window. God is giving man to repent and to be saved. It's extraordinary when you think about it. And it speaks to the patience of our God. And this interpretation seems to fit with what Peter will later say in Second Peter 3.9. That the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The Lord gave time. The Lord was patient as Noah's righteousness, and his testimony was on display. Think about what that must have been like for Noah. The only family in the world who lived in right relationship to God. Day after day, preaching the gospel and enduring the insults, the slander, the reviling of those who thought Him and His God crazy. Faithfully preaching, faithfully building, while God gave the world time. And yet that time was not unlimited. Eventually the window closed when the door of the ark closed and the rains began to fall. Because the wicked rejected the gospel, Peter says the disobedient are now in prison as spirits awaiting the judgment of God. But Noah and his family, as well as the animals, were safe inside. They were safely delivered through the water. And while God fulfilled His promise to Noah, He would surely fulfill His promise to deliver these early Christians, as He will you and me. Can you see how the story of Noah could be an encouragement for these early Christians as it is for you and for me? To see that if God vindicated Noah and preserved him and his family despite their suffering, how much more will he rescue and vindicate those who are in Christ from their trials? Noah was mocked and derided for doing what God called him to do. He suffered for doing good, yet God rescued him. The other encouragement here is also a warning. It is better to obey God and suffer than it is to disobey and be cast into the prison of verse 19. I do wonder if there have been times when circumstances have made you wonder if you had made a mistake following Christ. That what you signed up for wasn't what you bargained for. After all, it is so much easier to give in to the pressures of this world. I have so much respect for my younger brothers and sisters in Christ who struggle to live with purity of heart in a sex-saturated world, who fight to honor God with their bodies and their minds as they look upon the opposite sex as image-bearers of God and not objects of self-gratification, who could possibly understand the pressure from their peers, the media, and the Internet to give in to the flesh. It is indescribable, yet they would rather suffer than disobey. And God will vindicate them. I also have such great respect for my brothers and sisters in Christ who struggle with same-sex attraction, yet resist fulfilling those desires out of obedience to God. The world will tell them to just give in to those desires, to stop fighting. Yet they would rather suffer for remaining celibate than to give in to disobedience. They, like Noah, act as heralds of righteousness and they suffer for it but God will vindicate them. Let us remember Noah's day as both an encouragement that God will vindicate His faithful as well as a warning to remain faithful to God. The third picture Peter offers to us is that we are to remember our baptism. This third picture is one that we have the joy of witnessing here at Rivermont on several occasions a year. You may remember your own baptism depending how old you are. "...were when you received it. For our baptized covenant children, their only memory may be a family photo of their own baptism." What is it that we are to remember about our baptism? Well, we are remembering God's covenant faithfulness to call and save a people unto Himself. Peter here makes a connection between the floodwaters of Noah's day and the waters of baptism. He says, "...baptism, which corresponds to this now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus. Once again, we are faced with a conundrum. Peter says that baptism saves us. Now that should immediately sound off warning bells in your minds. That seems to fly in the face of everything that we believe the Bible teaches about, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Baptism as a cleansing act cannot and does not wash away sin. Peter's already shown us that Christ is the only one who can do that. He's the only one who can bring us to God. Rather, Peter helps us see that baptism is an appeal in faith to God for the cleansing of the conscience. You see, in baptism, we are believing God's judgment of our sin And our inability to do anything about it except trusting in Christ's finished work on the cross. In other words, baptism is not a means to grace, but a means of grace. It is a testimony. It is a witness of the grace that is offered by God to us in Christ. Peter understands baptism as a tangible, a visible sign of grace, much like the Lord's Supper. It is a picture of the grace that is needed and given to bring us through the trials and sufferings of this life. The same grace that brought Noah's family safely through the water by God's mercy saves and preserves us. And so we apply this sign to those in the church who put their faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Who believe that the only means of washing away sins, of purifying believers for God comes through Jesus. So when we apply baptism, whether to an adult or an infant, it is a pledge by God that the promises of grace secured by the risen Lord will apply when the condition of faith is met. The act of baptism does not accomplish salvation, but rather indicates what God accomplishes through faith. In other words, baptism is about what God does and not what we do. And so when we witness a baptism in a worship service, we are to remember our own baptism. We remember the gracious promises that were made by God and are being fulfilled through faith in Him. This pledge, this promise gave the early church as it does us the confidence that we need, that we have been made eternally secure by Christ's work on our behalf. And the fourth and final picture that Peter provides for us is that we are to remember Christ's exaltation. Peter is asking these believers to look with eyes of faith to the reigning and ruling Christ who now sits at the right hand of God, ruling over all angels, authorities, and powers. Look at verse 22. He writes of Jesus who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him the suffering christ is now the reigning christ everything is under his authority there is no angel there is no authority there is no power that works outside of christ's control there is no harassing no oppressing no deceiving no accusing demon that is free to do as he pleases peter knew that all too well Luke records in his gospel that Peter was the target of Satan's scheme to unravel Christ's work. In Luke 22, 31 and 32, Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Did you notice that Satan demanded to have Peter? Who did he demand? Who do you make that demand to? Jesus. Peter belonged to Jesus and Satan was not free to do as he pleased. Nor is Satan free to do with you as he pleases. Your life belongs to Christ if you are in him. And yet we know that Peter's faith in Christ's work did fail. As he sought to instigate a fight with the soldiers and then later denied uh, that uh, he knew Christ three times. He failed to resist the devil's schemes, which is why he wrote in 1 Peter 5, 8, and 9, just a couple of chapters later, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith. Faith in what? Faith that Jesus is at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning over all angels, authorities, and powers. He is in control, not them. You are not left on your own. Remember Christ's exaltation. When in a short time, our vacation will be a distant memory, as vacations tend to be. It will fade into the background of daily routines and the impending trials that come and go in life. But we have those pictures. We have those photos and videos that we can go back and remember. We can not only remember those memories, but we can savor those memories. In the same way, we need to keep the pictures of Christ's suffering, of Noah's vindication, of our baptism, of Christ's exaltation close by us. We need to remember that when we... We need to remember them when we face the daily trials and struggles of living as Christians in a non-Christian world. We need to savor them. We need them to strengthen us that we might remain faithful until Christ returns. Let us pray. Holy Father, would you etch these pictures into our minds with permanent ink that we might not forget them. That we might be able to look to them when we experience the suffering that is part and parcel of being a follower of Jesus. Oh Father, as we seek to follow You, give us Your grace that we might stand firm. That we might remember of Your suffering that our greatest enemy has been defeated and there is nothing to fear. That we might remember how You delivered Noah and You deliver us that we might remember the grace that You give to us that is exhibited through baptism, and that we might remember that You stand exalted over all and that nothing can thwart Your plans. Anchor us in this, we pray in Christ's holy name. Amen.